I'm Peter Bonner-McNess, and he is Chris Lang. And welcome to another of these regular property briefings. And a warm welcome to you, Chris. Well, it's uh, great to be here with you, and I'm sure our listeners realise from the introduction that you've actually replaced Ken Hemmons as my regular interviewer. Now, unfortunately, Ken was taken ill a few weeks ago, and it, it seems that he's unlikely to resume his familiar role. So after three years of podcasts and 139 episodes to date, Peter has kindly agreed to take over from Ken. Although now retired, Peter has a fascinating career as an inventor and was, in fact, the first commercial trout farmer here in Australia. So he's quite the entrepreneur. And so on behalf of our listeners, I'd just like to say thanks for stepping up and taking over the reins. Well, thank you for that introduction and welcome. And after you approach me, I've had the opportunity to review the various topics covered by your earlier podcast. As such, I thought it might be worthwhile coming back to what seems to have been one of the favourite topics, how to put a deal together as a skilled negotiator. And so perhaps you could explore some of the fundamentals involved. Okay, where to start? Well, obviously you've got to do your homework before you begin the negotiation. And what that means is that you need to learn as much as you can about the other side. And, I mean, instincts are no match for information. You've just got to do the best you can. It's not always easy. Sometimes if you're negotiating with the agent, it's you want to find out details about the agent as much as the vendor. And sometimes the agent will provide, before the negotiation starts formally, will provide you with valuable information about his client or her client. And so that's the fact-finding period, as I said before, you actually start the negotiation. And also it's worth getting someone to role play, you know, rehearse and practice to play the role of the agent or the vendor and then switch roles again. So you get a good insight into the potential issues and aspects that will arise during the negotiation because you're trying to anticipate and therefore deal with those aspects so that you don't have surprises along the way. Is there anything else our listeners need to be aware of at the very start of a negotiation? Well, having said you've got to do your homework, no one is going to show you their whole agenda up front. And so what you've got to do is figure out as best you can what it is that they want. And I say to people, look, you know, I'll have an agenda on behalf of my client and the other side will have an agenda too. And in all my 45 years of plus of negotiating, I've never seen two identical agendas. Sure, there may be some common items, but they are seldom in the same order. I mean, what's a key item for the other side, maybe a very minor item on your agenda. And that's something that you are then in a position to trade. And you've got to work out what things are important. And sometimes when people give a reason, it's seldom the real reason. And generally, you can eliminate it 
whatever is the initial reason for doing something, there's always something hidden behind there as the negotiation unfolds. And also, you want to let the other side talk first. I mean, their first offer could surprise you, and it might even be better than you ever expected. So don't you start making proposals until you get something to work on from the other side. So when the other side puts the proposal to you, how should you react? Well, just following on from the the point I've just made, you never accept any proposal immediately. It doesn't matter how good it sounds. Because it's the first proposal, they're always leaving room to, to negotiate a bit further. And so my initial reaction is to wince and say, look, you've got to do better than that. And invariably, before you even have to make a proposal, the agent will come back and suggest that maybe a lower figure would be acceptable to his client. So already you've got them to improve the position and you haven't even started or entered into the negotiation formally. So that's important. The other thing is make sure you never negotiate with yourself. I mean, once you've made an offer, if the other party doesn't accept it, don't make another offer. You must get a counter offer back from them because it's a sign of weakness when you improve your own position without the other side first trading something in return. So you've got to be prepared to walk away even. And it's important to understand that. And if they won't continue to negotiate, well, maybe it's not a property that you should proceed with. Anything else to watch out for? If you're negotiating directly with a vendor, make sure or a vendor's representative other than an agent, make sure that that person doesn't go have to go back for approval. I mean, the reason I can invariably do a better or get a better result for my client is that that's exactly what I do. I mean, I'll float the idea, look, if your client, this is with the other agent, if your client would agree to so-and-so, I think I can probably get my client to accept that. Now, I haven't committed my client, but I've held out the prospect that I might be able to get agreement at that level. So I get pre-commitment from the vendor, take it back to my client, and it may well be that, that my client is prepared to accept it, but then we need we can have the opportunity to have a second bite and test it, and I can go back and say, well, look, I thought I could get that through, but I can't. However, I've got another proposal which is less than what we're putting forward to see if we can get a, a better deal, which might be on price or terms, so that I have the ability to, to do that. So it's, it's called referral to a higher authority, but you want to eliminate that on the other side even though you might use that tactic on your side. How about some of the aspects you might initiate? Well, it's important that you remain nice and cooperative during a negotiation. You see, the two styles is collaboration and combative. And 
you can always start out being collaborative and get tough later. But if you start out tough, it's a sign of weakness if you start to then suddenly become collaborative. Now, I'm not suggesting you get nasty, but if the other side does, again, you need to be prepared to walk away from the deal. Because if you can't remain calm and pleasant and you start to get emotional, that's when you will end up negotiating through reaction rather than clear thought. And you'll end up blowing the deal. you end up maybe compromising just on principle because you just don't want to be spoken to or treated in that manner. So be prepared to walk away from the deal. Now, the other thing is that a dream is always a bargain no matter what you pay for it. And it's easy to create the dream by telling stories, and I don't mean fibs, I mean creating a story around what you're explaining when you're on the selling side. It's not as easy to do it when you're acting and purchasing a property. However, if you have found out that the vendor is keen to settle early because it it may be that the agent has explained that he's got a rollover of a mortgage and if if he doesn't sell the property quickly, he incurs unwanted costs in having to roll the mortgage over and then unwind it later. So you can then paint the picture of a potential early settlement and the benefits that that will provide to the vendor. So it's just a matter of understanding and couching things in favourable terms, not necessarily cold, hard facts. At what stage do you actually reach agreement? Well, agreement is reached when both parties recognise the benefits of doing a deal. We talked about benefits before, and, and you have to understand the difference between features and benefits. Features are what's being offered, but you go to the next stage and you add the words, which means, and then explain, all the benefits will accrue by following this particular path. And that's part of the reason why in my purchase proposals, initially I set forward to the other agent a three-page purchase proposal which spells everything out, the whole deal. Now, there's two reasons for doing that. The first one is that I don't want there to be any misunderstanding, or probably three reasons. Secondly, my final proposal will be in the same format. Now, by having it at the outset when there is no pressure and commitment, the vendor digests it, sees it, and therefore when it comes at the the end, it's not new. They're not hunting around for surprises and all sorts of things. So the format is acceptable. But what's probably most important is that because it's in writing, the agent is duty-bound to pass it on unaltered to the vendor. Now, the trouble is that most people do things by telephone. Sure, you might have emails and hopefully the agent has simply forwarded those on to the vendor with a simple comment, please come back to me with your response. But if it's verbal, it's open to misinterpretation. And so you have an opportunity when you put something formally in writing 
to spell out the feature and the benefit. Now, for example, we go back to the vendor who has to have rolling over the mortgage and therefore has a, needs an AS sale and, and hopefully an early settlement. Now, you have the opportunity there to frame two proposals. You can have, let's pick a round figure, a million dollars on a 30-day settlement and $1.1 million on a 120-day settlement. Now, the benefits become clear. It's no longer a take-it-or-leave-it. If you just offered a million dollars on 30-day settlement, it's take-it-or-leave-it. And as soon as price is the sole decision-making criterion, then someone wins, someone loses. By offering an alternate proposal, it's not take-it-or-leave-it, it's, well, which one do you prefer? So it's not you forcing the vendor. The vendor now has the proposal in front of them. It's them making a decision as to which one best suits them. Now, if they're bent out of shape over price and they want the 1.1, well, then they've got to live with the 120-day settlement. Whereas if the 30 days is so important because they need to roll a mortgage over, they'll, they'll rationalise that that's the reason I took the lesser price because I solved the problem with the mortgage, saved myself $50,000 in uh, rollover fees, penalty interest in and severance if I had to roll it over and then break it when I sold it. So you provide them with the ammunition. And so that's the way you reach an agreement. Do you have any specific warnings for our listeners? Okay, things to look out for. Well, Probably the main thing I'd say is beware of the detached negotiator. Now, that's the person who is feigning indifference or casually disregards timelines. And it's often just a ploy. They're trying to make you believe that he or she doesn't really care if the deal goes ahead or not. Now, the reality is they do care. It's just a pretty amateurish way of. It's a power struggle. I mean, it's like when, you know, when you go to an appointment with someone and they keep you waiting 15 minutes. They're probably just sitting in their office. I mean, I'm assuming they're not a doctor or, or someone like that that's got a prior patient. And then they waltz out and, and, uh, all the apologies for keeping you waiting, all that sort of stuff. But it's a power game. It's just a game. So just beware of that. And also, just because something looks non-negotiable doesn't necessarily mean it is. And, I mean, for example, you take a standard-looking contract. The agent will give you a contract, say, that's the contract to sale. It is because it's formal, it's bound, it's, or it might be a soft copy, but it's been prepared by a lawyer. That doesn't mean that certain terms in there are not negotiable. Now, you don't have to be the one that negotiates those terms. I never really get involved deliberately in discussions of the contract. I simply say, well, that's fine. I will send that to our solicitor for comment. I'm more concerned about resolving the commercial terms and getting that documented and then let the lawyer come back with changes. So, and most of them are reasonable. They're not capricious requirements that my lawyer or my client's lawyer will want. But if I've got the commercial terms sorted out, I'll let the lawyer sort out the niceties of the contract and then impose or include the commercial terms into that contract finally agreed. 
And one final thing, perhaps, is that if you can't say yes, then it's got to be no. I mean, just because a deal can be done doesn't mean it should be done because there are going to be deals that, you know, exceed or take you past what you consider the irreversible or irreducible position. And no one has ever gone broke saying no too often. So you just got to be prepared to walk away. And that's partly because of the attitude of the other side or partly because, you know, just the way the deal's coming together, it's not going to leave you in a good position and you're never going to feel good about it. So, as I said, just be prepared to walk away. It's not like a house where you might fall in love with it and you've got to have it. With commercial property, it's a numbers game and it'll always be ruled by logic and reason rather than emotion. So I guess that's basically it then. Well, not quite, because it's always good to debrief after every encounter. And in fact, I recently put together a webinar for my mentor group as a case study to completely reverse engineer a negotiation I undertook on behalf of several of the members. You always need to keep a record of what went well, what went wrong, and how you might handle things better next time. Good advice, and many thanks for that, Chris.